We're in a series called The Pursuit, and it's because in the books of First and Second Samuel, really one book written all together, but we split it up into two segments. Uh, in the two segments of First and Second Samuel, we've been seeing people are pursuing something. Everybody is chasing something down. Uh, it started with a woman who was pursuing God that she might have a child, and it just developed over time, and we saw a different character each one of these times who was chasing something down. But behind Behind the whole story, there has been a picture of God seeking us, a picture of God pursuing people. One of the key verses that we've quoted many, many times over this past 10 weeks now is the verse where God says he was looking for someone after his own heart. And that's what this set of books is really all about. It raises the question for you and me, what are we pursuing? What are we chasing down? What are we after? And so last week, even though it was Easter, we started in the same passage that was the next one on our list. Because the next one on our list gave us this picture of David that then Jesus quoted in the New Testament. And I'll get back into that for just a little bit, in just a little bit. But the question that we kind of hinted at last week but never answered was the question that we discussed today. What are you like when you're under pressure? I wanted to use that uh, video clip from the new Encanto movie with the big lady who's like, I'm the strong one, I'm not nervous, I'm just, whatever. So uh, maybe, you know the, maybe you know the song, um, and I don't want to say too much of it or play it because YouTube might ban uh, this live stream. And so we're just not going to go there, but uh, you, you, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen the movie, just look up the one song under pressure. It's, it's worth it, even though, yeah, anyway. So I, I asked a question for you guys today because I want to know what kind of person you are when you're under pressure. A lot of us turn into diamonds, but most of us crumble. And um, even those of us who think we're turning into diamonds, we've really just turned into lions and are lashing out at the people who are putting pressure on us. And so we're going to deal with that today by looking at the story we looked at last week just a little bit, but then the story that follows it. And we're going to see a contrast between a guy named David and a guy named Saul. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with the story, I'll give you a little bit of review. David is the guy who killed Goliath. You know, the little sling, swinging it around, throwing the rock, hit the, guys in the guy in the forehead. He falls down, and then David kills him with a sword. That guy, Goliath, is dead, okay? That's David and Goliath. You might know that story. This other guy, Saul, though, is the king. David, when he does this Goliath thing, he's not the king. He's just a shepherd boy. But he has been anointed to be the king. And Saul over here, who actually is the king, is feeling threatened by David. And so Saul is trying to kill David. And so each one of them are under pressure. Saul is under pressure because he knows he's losing his grip on the kingdom. David is under pressure because the king and his army are trying to kill him. And so each one of these guys is going to deal with their pressure in different ways. And I'm going to give you most of the answers up front before we look at the Bible passages, because hopefully that'll help you see it a little bit more clearly. But we're going to start with David. And when David is under pressure, the first thing that we saw him do in these two, two chapters, we saw it last week, the first thing we see him do is to resort to deception. David, when he's under pressure, David resorted to deception. I'm not going to read it again, but last week we saw David then, he runs away from Saul. He finds himself in a place called Nob, and he meets a priest called Ahimelech, and he lies to him. 
He lies to the priest. He says, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. Would you help me out? And the priest is terrified because if he helps David the fugitive, then he's in trouble. And if he helps Saul, if he doesn't help David, well, David is the guy who killed Goliath. And so this guy, Ahimelech, is pretty scared. And so he's scared, but David lies to him. He says, no, no, I'm working for Saul. You can trust me. Help me out. And then Ahimelech gives him the holy bread, which was wrong for someone to do. David shouldn't have been eating the holy bread. We talked about that last week and how God met him there anyway and showed him grace and forgiveness. But then also uh, Ahimelech gave David Goliath's sword. Uh, apparently the sword had fallen into the hands of Ahimelech somehow and he had the sword all wrapped up and he gave that sword to David. So now he's given David food and he's given him a sword. But there was a verse in last week's passage that we skipped over. You might have noticed it, but we skipped right over it and I want to read it to you now because it's the foreshadowing verse for something else that we're going to see today later on in chapter 22. It says this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7. It says, Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. That's it. It's a verse that pops into the middle of this story about David and Ahimelech, completely out of context. It's just there because the writer, Samuel, is trying to foreshadow the events that are going to happen in chapter 22. So David sees Doeg the Edomite. Edomite, that's a reference to where he's from. He's from a land named Edom. And so anyway, David sees this guy and it registers with him, but it doesn't take any meaningful place in that story. But anyway, David deceived the priest. When David was under pressure, he resorted to deception. Now, the next story after this continues it. If you're looking it up, we're in verse 10 now. It says, that day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Pause. Achish, king of Gath. The verse immediately before verse 10 was verse 9, when David got a sword, and that sword had previously belonged to? Goliath. Goliath, right. And Goliath was from, you might not know this, he's from Gath. So verse 9, David gets the sword of the guy that he killed who was the champion fighter from Gath. And now the next verse, David is in Gath. That's the city. Achish is the king. And David has now found himself there. Now, if he's carrying Goliath's sword, people are going to recognize that, don't you think? A nine-foot-tall guy has a sword that most people would remember. And so here's... Here's David, and he's in Gath carrying this sword. Everybody knows who it is. And it says, but the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? They're calling him the king. They don't even care about Saul anymore. They think David's the king. Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. That doesn't make sense either. When you have just killed their champion, and are holding their champion's sword, why would he be afraid of Achish? Well, because Achish has an army, and David just has himself, and a ragtag group of guys with him. David is afraid for some reason. Verse 13, so he pretended to be insane in their presence. 
And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, I love this line, look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? His attitude is, man, I am teeming with people who are insane. I don't need more. And now I don't know how many his quota is, but it's just weird that he would bring that phrase up. Do I need another madman around here? And so anyway, David is pretending to be insane. He's drooling. He's writing things on the gate somehow. I don't know what he's using to write, but he's making marks on this gate. And, and it's David again. He deceived the priest, and now he's deceiving the king of Gath. When David is under pressure, he resorts to deception. Now, there's a weird thing though, because David seems to turn a corner after this. Because in the very next passage, we begin to see David not worrying about himself. We see that even though he's still under pressure, David is caring for other people. Even though he's still under pressure, David cares, and he cared for other people. Look what happens next in this story. We're picking it up in chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered, gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. This is just an amazing picture of all these people who are disgruntled, they're frustrated, they're irritated with King Saul, they're irritated with the way things are going on in the, in the society, and on top of it, they are under their own kinds of pressure. David's family is under pressure because if David rise up to be, rises up to be the king, Saul is going to be out. And so if Saul is going to kill David, he probably wants to kill David's brothers. He probably wants to kill David's dad and the rest of his family. And so David's family is under pressure, and so they go to him. And then all these other disgruntled people are under pressure, and they go to David. And this is fascinating because even though David is under pressure, the threat of Saul killing him, even though he has just narrowly escaped this situation in Gath, David is going to take all these people in. And it's not just that he's going to be their leader slash commander. David is going to be the person who cares for them. We were just told that David was hiding in a cave called Adullam, right? Now, way, way, way at the end of 2 Samuel... At the end of that book, there's a little account that is, being, that is put in there that's kind of a flashback account. And it's a flashback account of David and his exploits with the men who followed him around. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, there is a little story about something that happened right now while they're waiting in the cave. And so I thought I'd skip over there to read that story to you, to show you what's going on, and then to let you see how it makes a difference in this moment in David's life, okay? Let's take a look at it. This is 2 Samuel chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. It says, during harvest time, 
three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam. He's hiding in that cave, and three of his 30 chief warriors come down to him there, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, and it's setting up this scene. Now, David is from Bethlehem. You might remember that. David is from Bethlehem, but there are Philistines in his hometown, and he's hiding out. He's hiding out from Saul, remember? He's under pressure from that, but he's also just in general under pressure because also the Philistines are controlling his hometown. Let's keep going. It says this, David longed for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Oh, I remember the Bethlehem water. Man, that well, it might, have, might not have been great, but nostalgia is powerful. He's like, man, it wouldn't be great if I could have some of that water again. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Now, if you are David in that situation, and these men have just risked their lives to get you a glass of water for crying out loud, would you not feel so proud, powerful, strong? Man, I just have to wish something and it's their command. My wish is their command. I'd like to have some water. And they go and find me the favorite water. And they bring it back. Wouldn't you get a big head? Look what David does with this. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. The point of the story is to show us how amazing these three warriors were. But I like the story because it shows us about David. David's like, wait a minute. You risked your lives for me? There is no way I ever want you to do that again. There is no way I will ever acknowledge that if you sacrifice for me personally, there's no way I'm going to receive that. I don't deserve that. This is your life. This water is as precious as your blood. I will not drink it. And he pours it out as an offering to God, saying, God, thank you for these men, but God, give them some sense. (laughs) God, help them not to think that they need to serve me. The humility in David at that moment comes in such stark contrast to everything else that we see before and after this in the story back in our chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Before that, David was afraid of his own life. He's taking advantage of the priest. He's taking advantage of the the Philistine king in Gath. He's, He's deceiving these people, but now all of a sudden he's got these men around him and he changes. And he becomes a person who's caring for them. And it's not just them, it's also his family too. Jump back into 1 Samuel chapter 22, and we get to verse 3, where it says, From there David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. It's another beautiful picture there. Now, you might not remember this, but David was a descendant of a Moabite woman named Ruth. He was like her, her great-grandson. There was Ruth, and then she and Boaz had a child named Obed, and then Obed had Jesse, and Jesse had David. And so he's got a family history with Moab. 
And now he's taking his mom and dad there and he's like, king of Moab, would you watch my parents? Would you take care of them? Because I don't know what God is going to do with me. David is caring for other people. But the next verse, again, shocks me. Because even under pressure, David is attentive to God. David was attentive to God. Let me show you that verse. In 1 Samuel 22, 5, it says, But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Heret. This is so uh, interesting to me because David is in the cave of Adullam. He's got a crowd of people around him. He's got soldiers around him. He's got 400 soldiers plus all their, all their women and children, all their families. He's got his own family. He's got his brothers. He's got his mom, his dad. He takes his brothers, his mom, his dad to, to Moab or at least his mom and his dad. And he's got all these other people. He's caring for all these people. He's in the stronghold. And God says these words to him, go away from the stronghold. I don't ever want God to say to me, Jeff, get away from the safe place. You know, that's the thing that I want to stay in. I want to find the safe place. I want to stay in the safe place. God, I want you to put me in a little safe bubble and just don't ever let the bad things come to me and don't ever make me go to where the bad things are. But God says to David through this prophet, get out of the stronghold and go back into Judah, Judea. And where, I mean, Judah is, is the land where Saul was in charge. And oh my goodness, so now David has to go back to the place of even greater pressure. But he does. God doesn't say why. Why should David go back to Judah? He doesn't say. Why should David leave the stronghold? He doesn't say. We get one verse a prophet comes to David and says, you got to go home. And David's like, oh, all right. If God says so, I'm going to do it. There's something about David that is noble. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But we need to now analyze Saul. Because the rest of chapter 22 is actually about Saul. And it's pretty horrific. The first thing that we're going to find out when we look at Saul is that even though David resorted to uh, deception, Saul was a person who embraced victimhood. And it's different. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 6, it says, Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand. What is this? What is this guy's deal with being seated while he's got a spear in his hand? It's happened so much so far in this story. But he's seated with a spear in his hand under the tamarisk tree. What's the deal with this guy sitting under trees? He was under a pomegranate tree in an earlier story when his, his son was off doing some awesome stuff and he's just sitting under a pomegranate tree. Now he's under a tamarisk tree. I don't even know what a tamarisk is. On the hill at Gibeah, okay, well, he's at least in his hometown, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? What? They're literally standing around him right now as he is lounging under a tree. They're literally protecting him 
in a circle around him, and he's like, you've all conspired against me. You're all against me. That's the way I hear it in my head. Is that why you've all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Well, that's true. Jonathan did make a covenant with David, and no one really told him. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. Ah. Whenever I hear a person embracing victimhood and going into that place of whiningness, I just want to smack them. Because as we'll learn later today, uh, sometimes people are tempted to resort to violence when they're under pressure. <laughs> and, ugh. okay, so Saul embraced victimhood. But did you also notice that what he was doing there is he is blaming everyone around him? Here's Saul, he's got nothing wrong. I'm telling you, he's sitting down, he's got a spear in his hand, he's underneath this tamarisk tree, it's probably a good tamarisk tree. I don't know, maybe tamarisk tastes good, maybe it's got good shade, maybe it smells nice. I don't know what the deal is, but he's there, and he's enjoying life, and all he can think about is all these people around him and their problems, and why they're causing him so many problems. And he's blaming all of them, even though his life is not bad. Blaming all of them as if they've done something against him. Now, if you just, this is a little piece of advice. This is not exactly, you know, there's no blank for this. Just a little freebie here. If you ever encounter a person who is like always playing the victim and um, always blaming other people, that's a person you want to avoid. That's a person that you basically say, okay, it's time for me to end this relationship here. If you're dating that person, run hard and run fast. If you are married to that person, find counseling, please. Because if you, or if you are that person, find counseling, please. Because the situation is so horrific when you find yourself or find yourself near another person who is embracing victimhood and blaming everybody around them. Because what you'll see next is what happens with Saul. Saul resorts to violence. And not just minimum violence. Saul resorts to terrible violence. Verse 9. But Doeg the Edomite, there he is, he's back to the story. See, I told you he'd come back. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Okay. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the men in his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he's rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Again, it's the second time Saul said that. Did you see that? David is lying in wait for him. That's not true. David's, David's not waiting around to kill Saul. David's hiding in a cave in Adullam. David is playing insane with the king of Gath. David is all over the place. He's not waiting around for Saul. In fact, he's got guys who, if he asked them to, they would go and assassinate Saul like that. David's not doing that. Saul is just in his victimhood mentality. But look what happens. Verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, 
Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Yeah, David was all those things. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. You better believe it. A, David is not conspiring. B, Ahimelech did not help David against Saul. C, Ahimelech is a priest of God. You don't threaten him. D, why would you ever kill him and his whole family? It is abundantly ludicrous. But you see the different responses to pressure. David had a certain kind of pressure. Saul had a certain kind of pressure. And while David starts out with deception, he immediately shifts. He focuses attention on caring for others. And when God says, to, says something to him, he pays attention. Saul, on the other hand, he's got pressure, not even the same amount of pressure, a totally different kind of pressure, but he's got this pressure, and his response to it is, I'm just going to feel like I'm the victim, and everybody around me is out to get me, and, and I'm going to blame everybody else around them, and I'm going to take violence into my hands. And then, even though David responded positively to the prophet, saying, oh no, you've got to get out of the cave, some people say to Saul, we're not doing what you asked us to do. So what do you think Saul's going to do? Is he going to turn around? Is he going to be like, okay, I got it. You guys have brought me to my senses. I'm not going to kill the priest and all his family and all that stuff. No. When Saul is confronted with his actions, he doubles down. Take a look at what happens next. It's horrific. Verse 18, the king then ordered Doeg you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. The linen ephod was the uniform of the priest. And so he killed 85 priests. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. It's not just that Saul kills this priest. It's not just that Saul killed the other priests who were there. He killed everybody in the entire town. I mean, Doeg is the one with the sword, but Saul's the one who tells him to do it. Man, when you get yourself into a, a mind space where you feel like you're the victim and you're blaming everybody around you, and you begin to resort to violence, you can find yourself in the worst of places. Now, just to highlight this, people all the time are like, man, the Old Testament is so violent. People are dying all the time. I want to remind you that the people dying frequently are dying as the result of a terrible, sinful action of a particular person who's causing it. This is not God's will. He didn't want these priests to die. He didn't want this city to be ransacked. This is Saul being a blaming, victimized, violent person who is not handling his pressure very well. Now, 
And so what I want to do is I want to highlight for you just a couple principles, a couple truths. Because I, I, I don't know exactly where I want to take this. On the one hand, I want to give you some warning and be like, if you see a person like that, run. But on the other hand, I think we all need to take some challenge and be like looking in the mirror. Have I been a person like this? Am I a person like this? How have I been dealing with the, the pressure in my life? Am I a person who is feeling myself the victim and blaming other people? Am I the person who's resorting to violence? Man, I tell you the truth. I'm tempted to those things too. Over the past couple of years especially, it's been incredibly difficult, but I want to give you this statement. The more we internalize pressure and externalize blame, the more prone to violence we become. The more we internalize pressure, we take some pressure that is out here in the world, some sense of something, and we bring it into ourselves and we're like, this is mine. I'll give you an example. Um, so Friday night, my wife and I were driving, Jen and I were driving back from Chicago. We had um, gone to a visitation of a family friend who had passed. And we were coming back from Chicago on Friday night listening to a podcast. And uh, we put in a podcast, I put in a podcast that uh, Jen had recommended to me. Because the point of the podcast was to um, have this psychologist who had written a book on this podcast talking to the hosts of the podcast about his book. And the topic was, how do you speak in a way that is different from the people around you? In other words, how do you properly be a dissenting voice to the people around you? And one of the reasons that's big on my heart is that over the past couple of years, I've learned that some of the things I think are really important that the Bible really teaches are actually dissenting voices with regard to some of my pastor friends in town here. And so I've been trying to figure out how to be that voice in the context of people who don't agree with me on some things and how to do that in a way that is helpful, beneficial, that all of us can grow from, stuff like that. I know I'm dissenting, but how do you be that dissenting voice, okay? So Jen says, I think you should listen to this podcast. It has an interesting premise. It's all about that. So I'm listening to it. We're listening to it in the car. And as we're driving, I'm beginning to hear more and more that the podcast hosts and the guy who wrote the book are talking about the dissenting voices out there in the world that are doing a good job. Now, they're not clearly evaluating them and saying this person's doing a good job, but all of their illustrations when they're talking about a dissenting voice, all of their illustrations are on the far right of the political spectrum. In fact, on multiple occasions on the podcast, they make a reference to a guy named Joe Rogan as being a guy who they didn't say he's doing it right, they didn't say he's doing good things, but they just used him as an illustration of a dissenting voice. And the whole context of the podcast is how dissenting voices need to have their place. And so the longer I'm listening to this, the more I'm hearing them prop up this guy that I'll just be honest with you. If you don't know about Joe Rogan, that's fine. Uh, if the fact that I mentioned the name, those of you who do know who he is, some of you want to hear the rest of what I'm going to say, and some of you don't want to hear the rest of what I'm going to say. And that's, that's frustrating to me, but you, know, you can shut off for the next five minutes, but we'll be back at the end, okay? So make sure you come back at the end. But here's the deal. Joe Rogan has a podcast, 
And he, on his podcast, acts like he's not taking any sides. He just wants to give a platform for voices that are saying things that are different from the mainstream consensus out there. And it just so happens that the voices he brings onto his podcast are the voices of people who think ivermectin cures COVID and vaccines are a hoax and COVID is a hoax and mask wearing is stupid. And, and those are just some of the people that he brings onto his podcast. And so in other words, the people mostly on his podcast are people from this far right kind of perspective of things. And the guys in the podcast that I'm listening to are talking about that guy's podcast as, look, here's a guy who's doing it. And I had to turn it off. I turned it off because I was, I was just thinking to myself, okay, so um, I understand that I want to be a dissenting voice in the particular context in which I am in. Because there are things that Jesus teaches us that are not present in a lot of churches today. And so I need to be a dissenting voice in the circle of pastors in which I move. But at the same time, I'm really ticked off at some other people who are also dissenting voices. And so I, I turned it off because I needed to find a way to deal with this. And so I started to try to process it verbally, and I could tell that Jen and I were not on the same exact page at that moment in time, and I wasn't ready to be on a nearly exact page yet, and so I just was like, I got to think about this, I got to process this. But I'll tell you what, all that story, to try to illustrate this, I feel pressure because I have a platform. I have a literal platform that I stand on every week. And so I have a responsibility to say things. I have a responsibility to communicate things like truth and goodness. And so I feel that pressure. I'm also a human being, and I have relationships, and I feel that pressure. And I've been connected on social media for a while, and so I've got that pressure. And you and I can relate exactly the same way whether your particular pressure is on a stage or in a relationship or around a dinner table or on social media. We all have this pressure, this relational pressure where we feel like we're responsible to help the people around us. That's one, pressure. Second, we see problems and we blame outside ourselves. We, we point the blame outside and we're like, okay, I'm going to blame that guy or I'm going to blame that podcast host or I'm going to blame that other thing or I'm going to blame this situation. And so I have pressure of whatever platform I have and I see problems that are all outside me and I want to blame the problems, but I also see that some of the people who are near me, some of the people who are bringing the pressure near me are people I want to blame are people I want to blame. And so you'll put something on Facebook and I want to blame the person who wrote it, but I want to blame you for sharing it. And I want to blame all the people for commenting on it. And I want to blame all the people for liking it or all the people for being angry at it. I want to just blame everybody. Everybody's wrong. And now because I have the pressure of whatever platform I have and because I have been blaming the people around me, I am Saul, tempted to be a person who resorts to violence. Now, by the grace of God, I'm not tempted to physical violence, and by the grace of God, I wouldn't be able to anyway. But I am very tempted towards verbal violence, putting someone in their place, making them feel stupid, making them feel like their opinions are invalid. I can do that.
And so anytime a person has internalized that pressure and externalized the blame, they're in danger of becoming a person of violence. Because as long as I'm the one with the strength and you're the one with the problem, I'm going to do something about it. But on the flip side, we also need to address this from the standpoint of the people we allow to have influence in our lives. And so I'm going to give you the same basic idea from a, a slightly different perspective. Just one more thing to write down. The more a person embraces power and the more they blame others, the more dangerous they become. And if you're in a relationship with someone else and they're constantly blaming other people, they're constantly acting like the victim, they're constantly grabbing for power in their lives and somehow, if you are in a relationship with that person, that is a person who needs to be avoided. If you're dating them, break up. If you're married, go to counseling. If it's you, go to counseling. If you're voting, don't, at least for that person. Because... The person who's under pressure is the person who is prone to incredibly bad things. But notice the worst thing David did was he pretended to be nuts. Now, he's going to make other mistakes, don't get me wrong. He's going to make other mistakes. But I want to take you back into this story because the big question that we should have is what makes them different. And before we get there, I want to read this verse. Take a look at this, verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Who's responsible for that town getting slaughtered? From one perspective, you'd say it's Doeg. He's the one who did it. But I don't think he did it by himself. You don't kill 80 men by yourself. He had Saul's approval. He had men with him. Who's responsible? Saul? Saul's the one who ordered the command. Who's responsible for the death of all those people? David says, I am. That's weird, don't you think? Now, maybe David just has an overdeveloped guilt complex. And maybe he's just always looking for something else that must be his responsibility. But I don't think that's the case. I think David here is saying, my actions have led on a string that goes all the way to something that I probably could have predicted. I lied to Ahimelech. He helped me, but Saul wouldn't have known that. And so Saul would have taken it out on Ahimelech because Saul is trying to get to me and he's going to get as close as he possibly can. David says, I'm responsible for that because I'm the one who put Ahimelech and his whole family in this position. You know what's fascinating? fascinating about that? When faced with the consequences of his own actions, David took ownership of them. 
Saul is like, no, it's other people's fault. I'm blaming other people. I'm going to do all kinds of violence. And David is like, no, I'm going to care for one more person. I'm going to care for one more person, one more family, because I'm going to take ownership of my part in this horrific tragedy. What is the difference between David and Saul? Why is it that Saul is just so prone to victimhood, so prone to blaming others, so prone to turning to violence, and David found a way to turn it, where David, under the same pressure, he starts in a weird place, deception, but he turns it. How does he do it? Well, there's something I skipped over. I didn't skip over anything in in 1 Samuel. But right after David left the king of Gath. Right after he left Achish, the king of Gath. The story doesn't tell us what happened other than he went to the cave. But did you know that David kept a journal? In fact, he wrote songs about this very moment. There is a song, there is a psalm in the Bible, Psalm 34 that says at the top of the psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before, let's go ahead and put that up, before Abimelech. Abimelech was the the Philistine word for a king. So the guy's name was Achish, but his title was Abimelech. And so David says, this is something that I'm writing when I pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove me away and I left. David wrote a psalm. He wrote a song after he got away, okay? Put yourself in the mindset of this. David is afraid of the king. He pretends to be insane. The king says, I don't need another madman. Get him out of here. He gets kicked out. What is David? David going to be thinking there. If it were me, I would be thinking, whoa, whoa, God, man, I did it. I figured it out. All I have to do is drool on myself. And it's like, you know, I know it's childish, but it got me out of it. It's like a Ferris Bueller kind of thing, you know, just, it might be childish, but if you lick on your palms, you can get out of school, you know, give yourself a fever, whatever. David's like, I pretended to be insane and I got away from it. God, you helped me to get away from it. I'm so glad that I did that whole insane thing. No, look what he actually writes. It's amazing. I'm going to skip over some of the verses. David says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. There's a part of me that wonders. Inside David, when he's pretending to be insane, is he also praying? I don't know. I don't know that. But I do know at the moment he is freed from Achish, at the moment he is freed from Gath, he looks over his shoulder and he's like, oh, God just saved me. See, I'll give you a little tip. If you're insane, that doesn't mean the king isn't going to stab you. If you're the one who killed their greatest hero, Goliath, and now you're in their presence with that sword, and you're pretending to be insane, that just makes it easier for them to stab you. Why does this thing work? It's not because insanity is the best defense in this particular case. It's that David looks over his shoulder and he's like, it was God all along. God is the one. He says, those who 
look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Let's keep going. He says, fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. And then, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. You know why David can leave the stronghold? Because the stronghold isn't saving him. The cave isn't saving him. The insanity isn't saving him. The sword isn't saving him. The bread isn't saving him. The priests aren't saving him. Nothing is saving him. He takes refuge in God because that's the only place where real salvation happens. That's the only place where real salvation comes. He doesn't need any of this other stuff. He doesn't need men who are defending him because he's got God defending him. He doesn't need men who are risking their lives for him because he's got God defending him. This is David's ultimate thing. He's like, listen, I'm just going to put my hope in God. I'm just going to trust God. I'm just going to let God be in charge. And if I'm letting God be in charge, all the pressure's off me. Because if God is the one who is my salvation, then there is no pressure left for me. And then he looks at the people around him and he's like, I'm just going to help you. I'm just going to help the people around me. I don't need to do anything more to take care of me because God's got me. I'm going to take care of you because God's got you through me. I want to leave you with these two thoughts and then we're going to spend some time in prayer and a closing song. And it's something that I just want us, to, want us to latch onto, especially in these days. We need to be people who, number one, put our hope in God. We do not hope in any of the things around this world. I don't hope in my platform. I don't hope in the ability I have to communicate things in such a way that it's going to cause people to turn their attention around from whatever it is they're interested in to whatever it is I'm interested in. I don't have any trust in any of those things. I don't need to put my trust in any of those things. I don't need to feel pressure in any of these ways. What I need is to put my hope in God and be like, God, move. And I'll wait. But if there is something that I can do, if there is something that God gives me to do, if God says, here, take care of this other person, if God says, here, take responsibility for this action, if God says, hey, leave the stronghold and go back to the place where I called you, I need to be able to say yes. So that means I need to own my part. I'm going to put my hope in God and let him take care of the solution. I'm just going to own my part. I'm just going to own my part. I don't need to solve the problem. That's what Saul was trying to do. He was trying to solve all the problems by killing all the people. I don't need to solve the problem. I just need to do my part and put my hope in God. We're going to end with a song that says, God is good. And I want to sing of his goodness. Because that's what David did. You know, David could have patted himself on the back. He could have said, listen, I did this all on my own. I came up with this creative little insanity idea. He could have said that, but no, he said, I'm going to trust God. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you 
Live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.